Well, I shall be very impressed if any of you know who this is. No. Well, I didn't know who it was either. <laughs> I, um, I heard him speaking a few weeks ago on the radio, and then I thought, well, I better look him up, and I looked him up, and this is his picture. Let me just tell you a little bit about him. Um, his name is Lee Elliott Major, and he was brought up in southwest London near to the Feltham Young Offenders Institute. And at the age of 15, he was kicked out of the family home. He dropped out of school. He worked as a petrol station attendant and for a little while as a bin man. But despite all that, he became the first person in his family to go to university. And eventually, he qualified after a number of different courses with three different degrees. He became an author. He became the chief executive of a charity. And in 2019, he was made OBE. And he is now the Britain's first professor of social mobility at uh, Exeter University. And it was a really interesting interview uh, on the radio that uh, I listened to. And one of the things he said was, social mobility, which of course is the holy grail really for many progressive politicians, so social, <laughs> social mobility is not just about going from rags to riches, about, uh, I suppose a previous generation might have called it bettering yourself. He said for him, social mobility is about uh, uh, getting rid of or, or not being prevented by anything that is in your background from achieving your full potential. And that got me thinking, really, because I, I wondered if there was such a thing not as, as social mobility, but as spiritual mobility. And if there was, what it would look like. And in fact, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, that idea that there is nothing spiritually in your background that prevents you from fulfilling your spiritual potential, actually, that's the center of the gospel, isn't it? That's the idea of grace in our lives, that there is nothing in our background, doesn't matter where our education was or where we were brought up, or indeed what mistakes we've made or failures there are in our, our lives, there's nothing that prevents us from achieving our full spiritual potential. And the reason I, I, I'm highlighting this idea is because it seems to me that this passage in Genesis highlights that idea by showing us in some detail the dysfunctional way in which um, Isaac's family related to each other. And at the same time, as Miriam was saying, affirms that this is the family through whom the promise is going to be passed, the promise that will uh, end up in the Messiah, in Jesus. 
This is a deeply flawed family. It starts with Abraham. Abraham's son is Isaac, and Isaac's son of Jacob. And that is the, the, the way that the promise is passed down through the generations. They're deeply flawed. And yet, these are the people through whom the promise of God's Messiah is passed. And there are echoes in this story, I think, for, for all sorts of stuff that happens in our families, as Miriam has already touched on. And uh, I want to just look at some of that stuff as a way of highlighting the idea that spiritual mobility means that none of that need hold us back. And the first thing that's there, of course, is, and I can't remember if Miriam mentioned this one, but she, there, yes, she did, parental favoritism. Actually, at the beginning, you know, the story of, of Isaac and Rebecca is um, a lovely one. Isaac is told by his father, Abraham, to go and find a wife back at Abraham's home country in, towards Haran. And uh, so Isaac goes off, and uh, that story, which uh, is in um, chapter 24, I think, if I remember right, um, it's a story full of warmth and grace and love. It's a lovely story. It's a love story, actually. Because um, if you remember, what happens is that uh, Isaac goes off, and uh, he eventually arrives at that area, and he, he arrives at a well. And he prays that God will show him the person that he's to marry. And he looks up. Who does he see? Rebecca. There's Rebecca. And then he discovers that actually she's the daughter of Bethuel. That's, that's part of Abraham's own tribe, own, own uh, family. And he's invited to go and, and stay with the family. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful story. It's a really warm story. And it seems that Rebecca and Isaac genuinely fall in love. And there's a little detail in the story that actually really underlines that, and it's a very unusual detail for these kind of stories. And it's this, that when Isaac goes to Rebecca's father and asks for Rebecca's hand in marriage, well, I'm not sure if that's the phraseology, but anyway, asks to marry her, um, they, they say um, Rebecca's father, Bethuel, responds in a very unusual way because what he says is, let's ask her. <laughs> See what she thinks about it. And actually, you know, in terms of the Old Testament, that you don't find that in anywhere else. I mean, it really didn't have much to do with the women in those days, I'm afraid. It was just what was decided. But in this case, Rebecca's father says, well, we'll ask her, and we'll see what she has to say about it. So they call her, and they say to her, will you go with this man? And she replies very simply, I will go. It's lovely. And uh, that's the story that's there uh, for the beginning of Isaac and Rebecca's relationship with each other. You can read about it in chapter 24. So let's fast forward to the passage in chapter 25 that we read. And um, Abraham has died in this passage, and Rebecca has given birth to the twins, Esau and Jacob. 
And by the time we pick up the story in uh, this part of the end of chapter 25, the twins are probably in their late teens or their early 20s. But something else has happened too. And that's that the relationship between Isaac and Rebecca has soured. And part of that is demonstrated in the favoritism that they show towards their children, with Isaac being, having Esau as his favorite, and Rebekah having Jacob as her favorite. And you probably remember that later on in the story that that favoritism and bitterness comes to a head because Rebekah helps Jacob actually deceive his father. Do you remember that story? By dressing up and, and pretending that he's Esau and persuading Isaac, who is pretty much blind by that time, to give him his blessing. So there's a real rift has occurred there, and the, the favoritism comes out of that rift between parents. And you know, sadly, there will be people in this room who, who know how that feels from their own personal experience. Because no, no parents are perfect. None of us had perfect parents. And none of us are perfect parents. But when this kind of favoritism happens, it can cause deep wounds within the family. And then alongside that um, parental favoritism, the other thing that Miriam mentioned is this, the sibling rivalry, the uneasy relationship between the brothers. And actually the passage tells us that that sibling rivalry began in the womb. Isn't that extraordinary? That these two twins struggled with each other before they were even born. And at birth, Esau is born first, and Jacob is born grasping his brother's heel. And, you know, it, it's a kind of a metaphor, really, for the way that they lived out the rest of their lives. Because Jacob was out to get him, wasn't he? From the very beginning, from the moment of birth, Jacob was out to get Esau. And the story plays out, and you, and you see that as a story of tension and deceit and of trying to get one over on each other. And again, these things are very common, aren't they, in our families? Favoritism by the parents resulting perhaps in sibling rivalry. We see it represented in our own families. I have three sisters. I'm not, well, I was going to say, I don't think we're too bad in terms of sibling rivalry. But perhaps we ought to get the three of them up here and ask them the same question. You might get a different answer. In fact, you know, I think Miriam said that sibling rivalry is very common. I think uh, the absence of sibling rivalry is very uncommon. It's there for all of us. And when we read through these stories of Jacob and Esau, one of the things that actually becomes clear is that Jacob is a particularly nasty piece of work, isn't he? And one of the possible meanings for the name Jacob is the deceiver, the grasper. And it comes from that incident of, of the birth when he was born grasping his brother's heel, trying to get one over on him. 
So there's parental favoritism, there's sibling rivalry, and then there's, there's this. There's opportunistic selfishness. In verse 29, when Esau comes in from hunting and he finds Jacob in the kitchen, and no doubt, you know, it was a lovely smell of the stew or the, the pottage, isn't that what it, um, the old translation used to say, um, that he was making? And uh, Esau says to his brother, uh, give me some of that stew. He demands it. Give me some of that. I wonder how you would respond <laughs> to your brother or your sister if they came in while you were cooking and they said, give me some of that. Well, there's all sorts of ways that um, Jacob could have responded, aren't there? But actually, the thing that seems to come to his mind, first of all, is this. I can use this to my own advantage. My brother is wanting something from me, and I'm jolly well going to make sure he pays for it. That I'm going to get something from him. So quick as a flash, he says, sell me your birthright. And the birthright meant that the, uh, the older child had greater status than the younger child. Even in the case of twins, as these two were, the firstborn of the twins had significant advantages. He would um, get a double share, for example, of the estate of their father. That's what his birthright uh, entitled him to. He had a larger role within the family life and it meant that Esau would be the one who was expected to take on the leadership uh, when their father died. And all of that, as Miriam mentioned actually, meant that I think Jacob put himself in the place that Harry, Prince Harry decides, describes as spare. He was spare and he resented it perhaps a bit like Harry. And so when the opportunity presents itself, Jacob jumps on it and he says, sell me your birthright. Opportunistic selfishness. And on the part of Esau, really, some pretty poor decision-making. Esau says, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright? Sounds a trifle exaggerated to me, I don't know about you, but uh, if he'd just been out hunting in the fields, he's obviously persuaded himself that he doesn't get a mouthful of stew in the next 30 seconds, he's going to fall down dead. Well, he obviously isn't. Well, I say obviously. Perhaps he isn't. But that's the basis on which he makes his decision, and Jacob makes him swear that the surrendering of his birthright will be adhered to. And so the chapter ends with the rather depressing sentence, so Esau despised his birthright. And all of that would suggest that none of these people are particularly honest or spiritually upright or fit people to be the ones who carry the promise of God to the next generation. They treat each other with contempt, they manipulate, they lie, they behave in ways that we recognize as all too human, but we wouldn't expect them, I think, of 
spiritual leaders. In fact, spiritually speaking, they really don't have very much going for them. And yet, this is the family through whom the promise of the Messiah is passed to future generations. And if there is such a thing as spiritual mobility, it's just this, that our failure and our sin, our background, our favoritism, our lies, our manipulation, our selfishness need not determine whether we are receiving the blessing of God. Those are not the key factors. Later on in this story of Jacob and Esau, there's a really rather strange and wonderful incident. It comes in Genesis chapter 32. And it's a passage that I've long been fascinated by. And it's the story of Jacob wrestling with God. And the background is this, that, that after all of this stuff that's been going on between Esau and his brother Jacob, eventually Jacob runs away because he's made such a mess of things that Esau is threatening to kill him. So he runs away. And he runs away to his mother's family uh, back in near uh, Haran to escape the consequences of the family background that he has contributed so much to. And for 20 years... There is no contact between the two brothers. And then eventually, Jacob returns to Canaan. He returns in fear and trepidation because he knows that what it's going to mean is a meeting with Esau where the chickens are going to come home to roost and he's going to have to confront the deception and the lies that have caused the breakdown in that family. And Genesis 32 finds him on the eve of this long dreaded confrontation. And it describes this strange incident of Jacob wrestling with God until daybreak. And that really deserves a study on its own. But just notice this one detail for the time being. That at the end of this bizarre wrestling match as the dawn breaks and as the day of confrontation with Esau arrives God blesses Jacob with a new name and you know don't you what the name is Israel Israel and actually that name means prince. And of course, as Israel, Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes, the founder, really, of, of the nation that still bears his name. How could that broken, dysfunctional family become the foundation of the, the nation of Israel, the spiritual nation of Israel, the ones who became the progenitors of the Messiah in that family scarred by parental favoritism and sibling hatred. And I suppose, really, that brings me back to the beginning because this is what I'm 
describing as spiritual mobility. There is nothing by the grace of God in our past, in our family, in our education, in our action, in our failure, there is nothing that need prevent us from experiencing God's blessing. And to use more normal language about it, this is, this is the story of grace. This is the story of grace that we experience in Jesus Christ. And it runs right the way through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that story, the grace story, is stronger than any other story in our lives. Stronger than any other story of failure or sin or dysfunction. I was at a conference last week in Edinburgh with Place for Hope, which is the organization that I do a little bit of work with, and it has its roots in the Church of Scotland, and it works in the area of mediation and reconciliation, particularly with faith-based groups and individuals. And the, the theme of the conference was creating bigger and more loving stories. Because the stories that we tell about ourselves and the stories that we tell about other people sometimes can be very limiting. In fact, sometimes they can even be downright destructive. And part of the process of mediation is actually to help people find a different story, a different way of describing themselves and other people in relation to them. And when you can do that through mediation, actually it has a transformative effect because they begin to see the world in a different way. So Jacob, having been all his life labeled as the grasper, the deceiver, by the grace of God, finds a different story. He's now Israel, the prince, the one whom God will use. He's changed from being the deceiver to being the prince, by the grace of God. He discovered, by the grace of God, that he need not be held back spiritually from achieving his potential. He found a different story about himself, by the grace of God. And you and I can do that too, every one of us. Doesn't matter what is in your background, doesn't matter how dysfunctional your family was, it doesn't matter whether there was favoritism or rivalry or lies or deceit. You and I can find a different story by the grace of God that we can live out now and that can become a blessing not only to us but those that are around about us. Because there is a grace story which is bigger and more powerful than any of the stories that we tell about ourselves or about the people around about us. Let us pray. Father, in the midst of this awful story, really, about 
rivalry and jealousy and favoritism and uh, selfishness and poor decision-making, in the midst of all of that, you're at work. None of it needs to hold back the participants from finding your blessing. And the same is true of us. Father, help us to discover in the grace of Jesus that story that brings healing and wholeness and a different direction in our lives and in the lives of those with whom we have contact. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.